You had a chance to meet. Uh, hope that you had a chance to meet a new friend around you. Good morning again. Hey, let's take a minute. We're going to uh, uh, talk here about uh, a passage from uh, the Gospel of John. We're in a series called Reclaiming Life, a study in the Gospel of John. We're going to speak from chapter 5. If you're using the Bible in front of you, it's page 890. So uh, we're going to roll here in a moment. But let's, let's take a moment, stop and pray. And again, we want to be sure to pray for uh, just so many situations around the world that uh, where we need God to to move in powerful ways. Let's, let's pray for ourselves as well as the situations around the world. So join me in praying. Father, thank you this morning for gathering us together as a community, a spiritual community where you indeed are the very head and you are leading. Uh, we pray that you would bring your word to us today, Jesus, and that we would have eyes and ears and the capacity, the grace to listen and to be changed by it. Father, we lift up our friends. We have friends in the Ukraine. Uh, we think of Christians suffering uh, in Iraq and Syria. We think of the civil unrest right now outside of St. Louis. Uh, we think of the lack of peace uh, between Gaza and Israel. Um, Father, we ask you in, in all of these situations that you would move and work powerfully and that you would uh, God, grab people's attention and grab their hearts. This world is a, is a place in some ways it's coming apart, it seems. And uh, we often don't know how to feel or how to react to the things that we see and experience. It seems so surreal at moments. And, uh, but thank you that, Father, you're in control. And, um, uh, and you're working and you're, you're moving. And you're, uh, we ask you to... Uh, move powerfully and show us where we can be a part. Help us to keep praying. And uh, Lord, indeed, we desire that you make us global Christians, Christians who would care about not just ourselves, but care about the world. And uh, so at least in our prayers, carve out a path for us to enter into the suffering of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, back to this world and this life, I... I, for one, one of the genres of movies that I really enjoy are courtroom dramas. And I love courtroom dramas, mostly of the, of the movie uh, ilk. But I'd like you to turn to a friend right now who's sitting next to you, if you can find someone, and share with them your favorite courtroom movie or drama, okay? Good, right now. Just go ahead and do that. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. All right. Everybody seemed to have a good opinion on that. I found a website this morning that um, I liked because it rated my all-time favorite courtroom movie as number one. And uh, so I thought, oh, these people have got it together. They listed off as these the top five, and I wonder how many of you included one of these five. Number five, 
they listed was inherit the wind. Number four, a few good men. I'm sure many of you have seen that. Number three, 12 angry men. Favorite of many, Henry Fonda. Number two, all-time classic bookend movie, To Kill a Mockingbird. And number one, how many of you included Paul Newman in the verdict? Yes. Yes, Orlando, you and me have good taste. Actually, I thought about showing you the final scene of Paul Newman's closing statement, but because I remembered it being so moving back in 1992, and I looked at it again, and I thought, oh, that's just, he didn't even say, he just said nothing there in three minutes. At least nothing of any true spiritual content, so I, I was merciful and saved you from having to, having to watch that. But courtroom, indeed, courtroom movies are compelling. And we love courtroom drama because the stakes are so high. Lies are uncovered, and justice is going to be served or justice is going to be twisted. The innocent are going to be set free or imprisoned. Evil can be judged or stopped or will be allowed to continue, and the stakes are so high. Well, this passage we're going to look at today in John chapter 5 is really a courtroom scene. And you might remember how we got to this place. And we're going to start, by the way, in verse 30 today. How we got to this place was that Jesus had healed a paralytic. And through that healing, which he did on the Sabbath, and then Jesus responded to that claim... By saying, I can only do what I see my father doing. And as we learned last week, we realized that that was no less an assertion to being God. Making himself equal with God. And so he has been charged with blasphemy. And what takes place now is a defense of those statements. Now we're going to skip over verses about 24 through 30. We stopped at verse 23 or, uh, through 29. We stopped at verse 23. And that section was actually the content of our Easter message in 2012. And that is online. So if you'd like to dive deeper into those verses, you can access that message. But we're going to start today with verse 30. And this passage, Jesus had been referring to himself as a judge... And this passage now continues in that same language of a courtroom. So let me read this, explain it a bit, and then make a few suggestions on how this, I believe, is relevant for us today. But beginning at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say those things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in its light. 
But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is, this is God's word. Okay, now, I think we see the mindset of Jesus here. Jewish law required, the Mosaic law, that there be two or three witnesses to establish a fact. And later specifies that no one can bear witness of himself. Now, Jesus, for his part, is confident in who he is. And he knows that he judges justly. But for their sakes, for their benefit, his interrogators, for their benefit, he accommodates to their legal paradigm. And so he brings forth four witnesses. John the Baptist, his miracles, the Father, and the Scriptures. Let me say a little about each of these. First, John the Baptist. Now, we met him earlier. He drew great crowds with his message of repentance and preparation for the coming Christ. And for their part, the leaders were interested initially. You know how this goes. You go to the gym club for about three months and then it kind of fades off. This is a little bit about what it was like. They, they, they were interested. They were intrigued. But John got a little too personal. It grew a little old. And they stopped coming. And Jesus knew this was one witness already dismissed. Secondly, his miracles, or as John calls them, signs, because they point to something greater. Now, we've already reviewed three of these signs. There will be seven altogether. Changing water to wine, the healing of the official's son who was near death, and then the healing of this paralytic man. These signs... John includes an account. When the signs happen, he includes an account of someone coming into faith. Each one of us gives us deeper insight into the identity of Jesus. Three, there are his miracles. Now, this is in verse 37. And I'm not real clear on what this means, the Father bearing witness to him. Here's my best guess. My best guess is that this refers to the Father's presence 
and the Father's voice at Jesus' baptism. There the Father spoke audibly, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now to a Jew, a voice from heaven meant the approval of God. Yet this did not seem to have much effect or make a dent on those here that are investigating Jesus. And finally, the last witness is the scriptures. Author Tim Keller notes there's three things here that Jesus says about the scriptures and their witness. Number one, he assumes their divine authority. He assumes that. He assumes the scriptures, accepts them as the full inspired word of God. And for Jesus, the Bible he read was the Old Testament. Two, he speaks of the unity of the Old and New Testament. And that unity is focused on him and his mission. He is the connecting point. And then three, the vitality of the scriptures. They are indeed the source. They give life. They're a fountain, as Jonathan Edwards said. They are the fountain of life. You know, thinking a little bit about today and the, how this scripture bears on today in a relevant way, Today, there's great objections raised to the Old Testament. And one of the objections raised is that Christians read it and apply it selectively. What that means is they arbitrarily apply some sections and ignore others. So if a Christian ignores, for example, if a Christian ignores restrictions on eating shellfish or wearing certain linens saying they no longer apply. Why then do they insist on making such a fuss on moral and sexual restrictions? Why why do they apply? Why do some apply and why do some not? That seems arbitrary. Now, this is a very good question. And unless we see this idea that Jesus is getting at, that the Old Testament is pointing to him, And in many ways is completed and fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore we are to understand the Old Testament through the lens of his redemptive work. And Keller had a great word picture to describe this. He says, unless we understand the Old Testament in this way, the Old Testament will appear to us like a tangled thicket. We won't be able to sort it out. We won't be able to discover its true meaning. We won't be able to make the sense of it that God would desire us to understand from it. So there are four witnesses that Jesus brings. John the Baptist, his miracles, the Father, and the Scriptures. Now, so that's the first movement in this passage. Now let's pivot a little bit to the investigators themselves, the religious leaders Those making this charge of blasphemy. Now, if you've ever seen a courtroom drama, try to imagine this. There is the scene where the innocent person is on the stand. The innocent person who's been unjustly charged. And the prosecutor is there asking them all these 
unfair, limiting, narrow questions so their story can't be told. And then there's that moment in the drama when it pivots. The defendant on the stand begins to ask the questions. They begin to challenge their accuser. And the prosecutor, you know, they always reply the same way. What do they say? Hey, hey, stop that. You're on trial. My client's not on trial. You're on trial. And they appeal to the judge. But then the camera pans to the judge. And you can see it on the face of the judge. You can feel it in the mood-altering music. The tide is turned. The judge wants the story to be told. And the judge says to the prosecutor, what words? Objections denied, counselor. And we love those words because we know that means the innocent person's story, which we've been emotionally connecting to the entire time, (laughs) is now going to be finally told. The lies are going to be uncovered. Listen, that's what's happening right here. This is what's happening. Jesus is turning the tables. He is suggesting that the problem in their faith formation, in their acceptance of him, is not for lack of evidence. Rather, the fatal flaw exists in their hearts. People make a similar claim today. There is not enough evidence to give Jesus credibility. Yet all the evidence in the world cannot create faith if the heart is not open to believe. If the heart's closed to believing, no amount of evidence will make any difference. So why aren't they more open? Why are they rejecting Jesus? Jesus gives four reasons here. And they're very intriguing. And I think they will connect with us. Look at verse 47, or 37. Number one. Here's why they're rejecting him. The first thing he says. His voice, referring to God's voice. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. His voice you've never heard. His voice you've never... His, his voice you haven't heard. His form you've never seen. I think what he's saying is, is that there's no individual, no personal connectedness to God. Now, Moses will come up later in this passage. Moses was the embodiment of their ideals. Yet Moses heard the voice of God. You remember the story of when Moses would go into that place called the tent of meeting. And there it says that he and the father had this intimate Communication. He'd come out, his face would be all glorious and shining, and the people of Israel had to, had to close their, hide their eyes. It was so bright and glorious. He was interacting personally with God. He was hearing God's voice. Another hero to them would have been Jacob. Jacob's name was actually changed to Israel, and that was the name of the nation. That was the level of identification with him. Jacob saw God's form after a night of wrestling on the riverbanks of the Jabbok. What did Jacob say in Genesis 32? I have seen the Lord's face. 
or have seen the Lord face to face, yet have been delivered. What is Jesus suggesting here? I think he's suggesting that what you have is tradition, what you have is culture, what you have is intellectual knowledge, but you lack an experience of the personal presence of God. That's what you're lacking. Now, look at verse 38. He mentions a second thing on why they are not open to believing in him. He said that his word, God's word, is not abiding in you. Now think about that. Think about This is a tragic irony. They worked so hard to learn the word of God. They read it for hours a day. Memorized it. Wrote it on their foreheads. Wrote it on their doorposts. They approached the Bible with an engineering-like precision, breaking down commands to the smallest unit, pouring over the smallest details, creating hundreds of additional rules to ensure that none were missed or, God forbid, preventing an accidental slip-up. And with all of this, the primary content of the Word remained on the surface. Like seeds sitting on hard ground. It did not penetrate them. It bore no fruit in their lives. They treated the Bible as an end. Not a means to an end. And that end was Christ. They were right in believing the Bible unlocked eternal life. But they were wrong to believe that they gained that life through strict External obedience. They kept the minutest rules, but they neglected the Bible's primary message. They did not discern its true meaning. It'd be like sending a friend to see Handel's Messiah. And all they could talk about later was how misplaced the composer's hair was. And the music hall, I mean, my goodness, it lacked character. And I think that first violinist was, I think I went to first grade with them. They missed the main thing. You wanted them to go and be swept away by its beauty, by its towering vision of Jesus. And they could not see the forest through the trees. This was, that was these guys. The word was not in them. Now, what did John tell us earlier about Jesus' relationship to the word? What did he say? How did he introduce this book? Who is the Word? Who is the embodiment of the Word? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of the Word. His and the Father's words are so intertwined that they are what? They are indistinguishable. To reject Jesus is to do what? To reject the Word of God. And how, we, how could this happen? How could there be so much study, so much commitment, so much... Uh, a seeming external obedience. And how could this happen? The answer is in verse 42. Jesus is like a surgeon here. And the courtroom is like getting really quiet at this moment. Verse 42, you don't have the love of God in you. The love of God is not in you. Now, I'm not sure if this means they did not love God or did not believe that God loved them. I'm not sure... I'm not sure it makes a difference. I think the bottom line is this. They're not interested in the love of God. 
they're not really interested. You think, how could they not want the love of God? It wasn't what they were after. It wasn't important to them. What were they after? Again, the answer is in verse 44. And here Jesus goes right into that fault line of their heart. The reason they didn't really want or were interested in the love of God is because they were seeking glory from one another. What they really wanted in life, what got them going in the morning, the, what got them up, the chase, was to impress their peers, to gain their praise, to build a reputation. That's what they lived for. Now, if you look at verses 42 and 43, you'll see there that Jesus is describing the culture of a community that had gone bad. He said, if future messiahs messiahs come, they'll be accepted. If they come in their own name, you'll accept them. They'll flatter you. Their values will be like yours. They'll be the kind of messiah that you need. Jesus could have played that game. Jesus could have folded under could have compromised their wishes for a different kind of Messiah. Except for the reason that impressing others was just not all that important to him. He was seeking first the glory that comes from God. Now, of course, we see this kind of culture in all kinds of places, don't we? In the business culture, in the academic culture, in uh, sports parents' culture, in uh, neighborhood blocks, people compete for the prizes. Or they want their kids to compete for the prizes. And folks live their entire lives. Think about this. Folks live their entire lives to gain that elusive recognition. And if that recognition never materializes, their lives sink into absolute and utter nothingness. Now, this kind of environment, as you might guess, this kind of culture is especially dangerous and subversive when it happens to religious communities and when it happens in churches. When the primary goal becomes to impress one another. When motivation comes from doing just enough to stay within the good graces of the community. When convictions never rise above this statement, this thinking, I do this because this is what good Christians are supposed to do, what the good Christians at my church do. And that's why I behave, that's why I act in a certain way. You know, when that happens to churches, when it happens to religious communities, you know, there's a kind of lifelessness that will define that community. There is a slavish imitation that will define that community. There won't be any new ideas. There won't be any creativity because no one's acting with any kind of individual conviction in relationship to God. What drives us is all on a horizontal level. And friends, listen, this can happen. I'm not speaking ethereally about something out there. This happens here. It can happen to us. It does happen here. It does happen to us. You know, people come to church. They're, they're, they're lonely. They're 
they're not accepted or whatever out in their world. And they, they come to church and they find love, they find acceptance, they find energy, they find, you know, people accept them and love them. And, and, and it's very easy to make the community your savior. It's very easy to make the love and the approval and acceptance of others your savior, really to begin to live for that. And you really begin to conform your life, not motivated by Jesus, but motivated to be accepted, motivated to impress, motivated to be a part of the community. But maybe you've never heard his voice. Maybe you've never seen his form. Maybe the word doesn't really, is not really in you. It's sitting somewhere up at the top. And what that does is it leaves us full of self-love is what it does. It leaves us in that place. It leaves us full of self-love. And we're spiritually tone deaf and therefore we have no need for God's love. We're not really interested. Well, Jesus now pulls the final deal and he calls a final witness, a surprise witness. Remember those court cases where the defense attorney says, I have a surprise witness to call to the stand and the prosecution's all frazzled. They're not sure who this is. It's a little bit about what's going on right here. Look at who Jesus calls to the stand, a surprise witness. Their hero, their hero. The one who holds their title deed, Moses. Moses, the writer of the Mosaic Law, in case you didn't ever put that together. The writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which they devoured. Their obedience to him is a source of pride. And yet Jesus said, who did Moses write about? Moses wrote about me. You see, belief in Moses, Jesus said, would lead to belief in me. Sitting here today in 2014 America, we cannot imagine how startling this was. What a startling statement and how this would have been received in this era. And now at first glance, it might be confusing. You might say, well, where does Moses write about Jesus? I don't see Jesus' name showing up. In the first five books of the Bible, why does Jesus say this? But see, this is where the the Jew missed it. The Mosaic law was there to constantly remind us of two things. Well, three things. One, how holy God is. Two, how sinful we are. And three, our need for a Savior. That was the purpose of the Old Testament. Remind them how holy God is. Remind them how desperately sinful we are. And remind us all of a need for a Savior. Here's where they got confused. They treated that same Mosaic law as a starting point for creating and justifying their own holiness. And when we start that way, when the church starts that way, when Christians begin that way, you end up with something pretty ugly and destructive at the end. For religion itself becomes the way I define myself. And the way I define myself is better than you. It's that latter belief that crippled and blinded these leaders. 
just like it can cripple and blind us today. Verse 47, Jesus comes to a conclusion, makes his concluding statement and rests his case here, saying, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, let me just draw out two pretty simple applications here. This text, John wrote this text uh, later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the early church was reading this and perhaps wrestling with the question, how could these leaders be so devout, so devoted, but still miss the primary meaning of the Bible? John helped answer that question. In the same way, you and I live in a world, a very pluralistic world, a very cosmopolitan world. The world has gotten much smaller. It's an image-driven world. It's a soundbite world. We, we see an image in a movie. We get a soundbite on the news. And we see around the world what appears to be genuine religious devotion, even devotion that challenges us. We see sweaty preachers wiping their brows, firing up a crowd. We see monks living with nothing, living on the backside of a mountain, rejecting, having rejected the world. We see gurus dispensing what seems to be this timeless, ancient spiritual wisdom. We see rows of worshipers bowing and reciting prayers. We see month-long fasts. Again, perhaps things you and I would never do. Can I share what I think is a message from this text to the church today is this. Be discerning. Be discerning. Don't be judgmental, but be discerning. Here's the point. All expressions of religious devotion do not necessarily equal true devotion to God. Let me repeat that one more time. It's so important in our cosmopolitan, pluralistic, image-driven world as you are just drawn close to the world. All expressions of religious devotion do not necessarily equal true devotion to God. Be discerning. Be discerning. Secondly, second application to this talk today is be careful friends, of religious smugness. Be careful. Be careful of building your security, your identity, your confidence that God accepts you simply by belonging to a spiritual community. Simply by coming to a place where you hear the Bible being spoken and talked about. They rested their spiritual identity on being a part of that community, a part of that tradition, a part of that culture, not on God alone and His Word as their ultimate identity and ultimate security. Listen, does God want you to be a part of the church? I mean, absolutely. Yes. Does He want you to be a a member of a spiritual community and an active, engaged participant? Absolutely. But that community and its place in your life must never become a substitute for only what God can give. 
Power through his word, power through his promises, genuine faithfulness, creative and new ways to serve him will happen as people get the right equilibrium between connecting with God first and then entering into connecting with the spiritual community. Ultimate security, ultimate love, and ultimate acceptance come from him. You know, in the end, at the end of the day, we find right in the end, Jesus judges justly. Jesus does not judge with mixed motives. He judges with holiness and and sympathy. He's the perfect judge. We're not. We're not, right? In this story, are we more like Jesus or more like the religious leaders? Who are we more like? We're more like the religious leaders. Our motives are mixed. We have been guilty or are guilty of the same things that these leaders were. We're often more interested in impressing others. You know, in in an academic community, you might impress by your degrees or by your research dollars or by other things. In the business community, you might impress by your spreadsheets, your bottom line, your profit, the the, the worth of your, your, uh, your stock offering. In the church community, the religious community, we impress others by our prayers, by our Bible knowledge, by our record of service. And we do this more than any of us would like to admit. What should we do? Well, we should do the one thing that these men were not open to doing, and that is be open to correction. Allow Jesus to correct us. Allow Jesus to change us. Be open and honest and genuine. Don't hide, admit it, respond to him. And then learn to walk with God. This is a lifelong pathway. Learn to walk in such a way where you are bringing your security and your identity totally, completely, absolutely on him alone. That's a lifelong journey, but one that if you follow Jesus, he's going to be ever bringing more and more of a reality into your life. And lastly, realize that there is one with perfect motives. The God-man, the author of our atonement, with perfect motives, the one who completed what you could not ever do. And that was to live a perfect life, to do all the right things externally and internally, to do them all out of a place of love for God and love for others. He exchanges his holy life for your unholy one on the cross so that not only can you be saved, but you could keep pursuing a life that's authentic, passionate, fruitful, and life-giving. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to search our hearts this morning and to bring, Father, your word by your spirit right to that place, right to that very place where we need it. Um, That place where we have been putting our security, our identity. It might be in a person. It might be in a material possession or it might even be 
just by being a member of the spiritual community. And yet, and yet, how long has it been, Father? How long has it been for some of us where we've had a personal experience of your presence? Where we heard your voice, we saw your form. Your word got deeper than just on the edges of our heart. We stopped worrying about impressing others and become far more concerned with impressing you. Jesus, lead us to that encounter in that place where we see that indeed the scriptures point to you and you are eternal life both in the here and the now. Lead us as we respond to you in worship, in our offering, in the prayers that we give, in the decisions that we make in the next 24 hours. Lead us to a place of holiness from the inside out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.